Hello, and welcome to the final episode for season two of the Good Intent, Good Impact podcast. We've been talking about the discourse on critical race theory in the United States. And before I get into the meat of this last episode of the podcast, I want to make sure that I make something very clear. People who know me well know that I have a tendency to worry a lot um, and that I'm usually a glass half empty type of person. Um, And given where I grew up and what I've persevered through in my life, I understand what that's rooted in and I understand what that comes from. But with that being said, I did not decide to do this podcast with rose-colored glasses or a very overly optimistic view of things um, and what our world could be. In fact, I'm in a place of being in quite the opposite stance. I am very worried about the state of our democracy and the path that we seem to be on. And I believe that if we don't figure this out and we don't figure out a better path forward, that the next several years could get really hectic and frankly, quite violent. Um, And so this podcast for me is my small contribution in my little corner of the world to give what I can with what little hope I have left that our country can and we will choose a different path. Um, And so with that, um, I I know I opened this podcast with a personal story of mine from in my high school days because this conversation tends to be very focused on K through 12. Um, And in that spirit, I wanna end this podcast with a story from that era in my life as well. Um, It's an experience that I had during my sophomore year of high school and looking back, I do believe it is one of the more pivotal incidents that put me on the path to being an equity practitioner today. Um, And so as I mentioned um, earlier in this podcast, I was a music major. And as part of that, I was enrolled in an advanced band class. Um, And one of my classmates who identifies as a white male, um, he and I did not get along at all. Um, We were constantly fighting with each other constantly at each other's throats. And the ironic part about it is his sister happened to be one of my good friends from grade school into high school. So I've known him and his family for a very long time. Um, And so, yeah, he and I, even though his sister and I got along just fine, he and I didn't get along at all. Um, And one day we were in the cafeteria before the bell rang to go to our lockers before first period. Because like if you, at Lane, like if you came early enough, you could get breakfast. So, you know, you'd come in, get some breakfast, sit down, you know, chill, you know, kiki with your friends, all that kind of stuff before it's time to go to class. And in, in our true pattern, one day we were in the cafeteria waiting for the day to start. And he and I got into it about, at this point, I don't even know what we got into it about. Um, but we got into it. And as I'm guessing you can, I'm guessing you can probably tell by the title, he gets upset and he's like, well, why don't you go back to Africa? And I was just like, skirt, what? Hold on. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like, wait, what? Um, now you gotta remember, I was in my teens. I was not as knowledgeable as I am now about social justice and all that kind of good stuff that goes along with it. I was still in my own early cycles of socialization as it relates to what it even meant to be a black woman, which was even more of a a challenge, I guess I'll say for lack of a better word, because I was in a very multicultural high school. Like 
we have people from all walks of life at Lane Tech, you know, they're from different nationalities and sexual orientation. Like for us, like we were, we were very much so a model of what like people think the melting pot is. Like we were very much so a model of that. And I had a lot of multicultural friends, people who were immigrant, all kinds of stuff, right? So like for me, I was still in a bubble of like, this isn't so bad. Like I can be a black person in the America and this is great. Like <laughs> this is completely totally fine. Even though for a lot of my classes, I was the only black girl in a lot of my classes and all that kind of stuff, but I digress. Anyway, so this happens. And you know, throughout the day, I'm, I'm stunned, right? Like I'm just like, I don't really know what to do. I don't really know what to say. Um, and so I kind of like, you know, we go along with our day, I go to class. I don't really say too much to him after that. So I, I go on my day, I go to class. And of course, the story starts to spread around the school, right? Like there are people who are my friends who are like, yeah, you know what happened, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was just like trying to like, okay, whatever, like I'll deal with it. How am I going to deal with it? I don't even know how I'm going to deal with it, but I'm going to figure it out, whatever. Oh boy. Uh, come eighth period, which is our, our shared band class, the band class that we have together. Come eighth period, I will never forget one of my, one of my older sisters, my sister who's just above me, three years older than me. I will never forget, she was walking, there's a long hallway that's the entrance to the band room, right? To get into this really large room where all of us were practicing. And I'll never forget her walking down that hallway. And the minute I saw her, I said, oh shit. Like I, cause I didn't tell her what happened. I didn't tell my sister anything. Um, but one of our other friends who, you know, had connections with my sister, clearly told my sister what happened. Um, and so here's comes my sister, like toward the end of eighth period, basically. And she was ready to rip his ass a new one. Like, I don't think I've ever seen my sister that upset on my behalf about anything ever before that or really since, to be completely honest with you. She was just like, what did you say to my little sister? I mean, she was ready to break a foot off in his ass. And the, fun, and the funny part was, he was like, oh shit, like, you could tell like he was a little scared like it's like oh shit you know and my teacher goes to her band teachers and and she's just like he told my sister to go back to Africa and, you know she was like telling what happened and I remember that he got pulled into the office by the band teachers I have no idea what they said to him like I have no clue what they said to him um but I remember like all right I don't know what's going on in that room I was in the process of putting my flute away like cleaning it up, putting it away and all that kind of stuff and get ready to leave for the day. And I remember him storming into the area where the instruments, where we would put them in the lockers were kept. And he was like, what did I do? What did I do? And I just looked at him like, what the fuck do you mean? What did you do? Like, are you fucking serious right now? Like, how did, what? How do you not know what you did? Um, he was irate, like he was livid. Um, and so naturally, um, that, did, that did not help us uh, build any bridges into trying to solve our differences, right? Um, and as I recall, I don't ever remember him facing any real disciplinary consequences um, for that. Because I never got called to a meeting to tell my side of what happened for any disciplinary. I never got any of that. So uh, from my standpoint, he never really got disciplined other than a, a, a stern talking to and from my perspective, what happened to me shouldn't happen to any student, certainly, but really it shouldn't happen to any 
person in a world that is truly equal truly authenticates and values people of different racial backgrounds but as we know the stories like this are all too common um, and so in my years of doing equity work and reflecting on that incident and thinking about how it shaped me and how I think about doing the work I do, particularly white identifying people, there are two things over the years that have stood out to me that I think are valuable for you to know. One, it's understanding and making space for the fact that people are products of their socialization cycles. I say this all the time. And if you've never heard of the cycle of socialization, which is another theoretical framework that was developed by Bobby Harrow. Um, that's B as in boy, O-B-B-I-E, Harrow, H-A-R-R-O. I strongly suggest that you look it up, okay? It's important to better understanding yourself and how you've been socialized, and that's especially true if you're trying to do the work of anti-racism. You, you really do need um, to take some time to think and sit with the cycle of socialization for yourself. And secondly, all of the things that we're talking about across the board ultimately come down to the choices that people make. Whether they were choices that were made several hundred years ago or they're choices that are made acutely in the moment and people that choices that people are still making today. So like it was a choice for slave owners to purchase slaves and make them work under unconscionable conditions. That was a choice. It was a choice for people at the interpersonal level to find ways around civil rights laws so that they can continue to realize their prejudice at the expense of black and brown people with like laws about you can't have your hair this type of way, that dumb shit, right? That's a choice. In the same way that it was a choice for my classmate to tell me to go back to Africa with impunity. Like, like just said it, like, and he didn't break a sweat saying it either. And ultimately, when we're talking about CRT, the opposition to anti-racism education, the co-opting of critical race theory and turning it into a boogeyman, which these folks know it's not. They know it's not. They don't care. That's a choice. And so depending on our positionality within our society, these decisions can either have really small impacts or they can have really far reaching ones. So for example, right now we're waiting to see what the Supreme Court is going to do as it relates to women's reproductive rights, you know, an affront to another historically marginalized group. We're, we're back here. Like we're back having this conversation about whether a woman has the right um, to terminate a pregnancy or not after a certain point, right? Like we're back there. And those nine justices who sit on the Supreme Court, the decision that they make, the choice that they make is going to impact millions of lives and have consequences for everyday people that is not going to impact them personally at all. On a much smaller scale, the decisions that are made by state legislatures and local school boards will determine if historically marginalized students are going to continue to not only suffer at the hands of students who choose to make their lives difficult or choose to say obscene things like this, this one white kid chose to say to me, but whether or not they're going to have adequate recourse in holding any of these students accountable. We are all responsible for our own decisions. And so as I begin to wrap up this podcast for the season, I wanna leave you with some final thoughts as it relates to what decisions you can make and what choices you need to be thinking about making to shape your own communities in the way that you think they should be. Now, I'm not a parent. I don't have children in the school system. But if you are a parent, 
I would say you need to make the choice to understand what rights and responsibilities your students have in their schools, especially if it's a public school. I'm not a lawyer, so definitely please do not take this as legal advice in any way. Like I'm not a lawyer, but I was a part of the student conduct system at, at colleges and universities. I used to handle student conduct to determine whether or not a student needs to be sanctioned from things like as small as a warning all the way up to suspension. So I do know a thing or two about student discipline. And reading the handbook at your child's school is step one. You need to know what's in there and what they're being held to and what you can hold the school to as it outlines the disciplinary process for disciplinary action if you have a child who is suffering from discrimination or bullying or that kind of thing. If your child is subject to being in a hostile learning environment or vice versa, right, your child is subject to a suspension or an expulsion because, again, that's one of those things where these systems tend to disproportionately negatively impact black and brown students who end up getting suspended for really stupid ass shit like I did, right? <laughs> like, I got a three-day out-of-school suspension for a cell phone ringing. That's stupid, right? So, like, if your child, who is a person of color, especially is subject to these systems that oftentimes do things to hurt us, it's important to understand the disciplinary process as well so that you can hold school officials accountable to what's written in the handbook and hold other students accountable when necessary if other students are perpetrating the harm on your child. I would also make sure to understand the basics of due process rights that your children are owed. Um, when they're going through the conduct process, especially if they're looking at a suspension or an expulsion in a public school. And also, I'd make the choice if I were a parent to understand if, if I need to file a civil rights complaint, how I'd even go about doing that and, and looking at websites like the Office of Civil Rights um, and thinking about that. If you really want to go the extra mile as a parent, I would recommend making sure that you understand the basics of Title VI. And I would also take a gander at the court case of Goss v. Lopez. That's G-O-S-S v. Lopez. Um, if you really want a gold star and you really want to go for the gusto and really want to like dig into that, um, because that knowledge, making the choice to have that knowledge at your disposal may come in handy for you down the road. Second, you can make the choice to become involved in your local politics where your voice and your vote can make substantive change. Now, I'm someone who's pretty disillusioned with voting at the national level. I'm one of those folks that's like, eh, I don't really know if I feel like my, my vote really counts. Like, I'm gonna be honest. But what I will say is that when it comes to local stuff, I think that's where your vote can actually make a difference and actually carry some weight. So if you are a parent with students of color or your white parents who have students who are in the school system and you believe in racial justice, you need to be at the school meeting. You need to show up and you need to use your voice. Every parent who tells you that their fear is that the anti-racism education will make their children feel bad about themselves and cause their kids to come home crying because they're like, we're oppressors and we're horrible people. All of that kind of stuff, when they tell you that, just kindly remind them that for many black and brown students, number one, they've been feeling this type of discomfort for a long time. And two, they're often bullied and harassed because of who they are and what intersections of identities that they sit at. Make the choice to remind them that their children's comfort does not outweigh your child's right to a classroom and a learning environment that isn't hostile because of their race or any other historically marginalized identity, whether that be their gender, their gender identity, their ability status, so on and so forth. Now, if it's me, because I'm me and sometimes I can be, you know, a little extra with it, but for me, I would challenge them to say, you know, you're worried about comfort, but you don't want to ban math class and you don't want to ban science classes. Now, 
We know that kids come home crying about tests that they don't do well on or or they didn't make it in the spelling bee and they come home feeling like they, you know, are failures and that kind of stuff. Are you going to stop the school spelling bee because kids fail at that too? Like, is that something you, you want to push back or, or take off the table because you're worried about your child's comfort? Like, if this is really about comfort, then you're probably not going to send your kids to school at all because there's a whole lot of stuff that <laughs> makes kids feel uncomfortable. But what we can do is teach them how to be strong and persevere through the challenges that they're working through, okay? So for me, that's a consistency argument. Like if you're gonna say that you don't want your kids to be uncomfortable, at least be consistent about it, right? Like if you're gonna pull Tori Morrison off the shelf, then you might as well pull Romeo and Juliet off the shelf as well because that has murder and suicide in it, right? So like if we're gonna go down that road, there's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to be on the chopping block as well. So, but that's just me. <laughs> but if I were you, that that would that would definitely be a point I would bring up in that conversation. If you're an activist or an organization who does political work or a political operative who's looking to take the anti-CRT crowd on head on, I hope that you will make the choice how to figure out your messaging. <laughs> like, I gotta give it to these people. I will say that Chris Rufo has done an excellent job with the messaging part of this. Like, he's done an excellent job at turning CRT into the boogeyman. And you all's job is to figure out how to undo that. I'm not the expert in that, okay? Like, that's not my job. Like, that's for you all to figure out. But I hope that somewhere, somebody is trying to work that out because there's a lot at stake here. And from my, my own lens, my one subjective lens, liberals don't do that very well. I mean, Republicans have figured that out like it's a machine. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know, but y'all need to figure that out. What I will say is that as someone who is just an American citizen, like everybody else who's just trying to live my best life, like, I can tell you that the thing that would get my ass up out of a seat into a council meeting or to run for an election or any of those things is to remind folks that it's not just just the discomfort or the bullying of your kids. That, that alone should be enough for people. But for people like myself who don't have kids in the school system or aren't like very closely linked to this, how do you get those people? If it were me, I would remind us that erasure is what's being done here. It's the erasure of our history in our struggle, right? So like, if you're going to ban certain books by certain authors, right, you know, you, you can do that, but what's next? Are you going to ban the teaching of civil rights altogether? Like, does the entire civil rights get movement get struck because you don't want the white children seeing the images of the white police officers like spraying fire hoses and dogs on people who are trying to peaceably march? Like, is that too uncomfortable for them to see and explain what was going on? Like, how far does this go before our entire history and all the, all the work that our forefathers did to try to get us to the little bit that we have now completely goes out of the window? The way I see it, the erasure of our history carries the risk of erasing what little progress that we have made. And that progress is not just laws and policies. A lot of the times people will just say, well, what does the law say? Again, a lot of the times like the laws are there, but they don't really support us in the way that they need to because of the structural racism that runs rampant and the implicit bias that's in the system and the decisions that people are making about how to interpret policy and interpret law that generally speaking doesn't go in our favor a lot of the time, right? So it's not just about law and policy. It's also about the trainings that we're trying to do and the conversations that we're trying to have about privilege and oppression that they don't want us to talk about, right? They know that the minute they are able to force us into being silent, they win. 
It really is just as simple as that. And finally, for the people who are against anti-racism education or for the people who are fearful of CRT who may be listening to this podcast, my plea to you is to make the choice to stop living in fear, to stop living in scarcity, and to stop living in lack. And instead, choose to live in the mindset of abundance and shared humanity. I get it. I know that you're scared about the country changing and what that means for you. I get that you feel like you're in a situation that's unfair. But as as you've told us and your forefathers before you told us, life's not fair. How many times have we gotten that? How many times have we been told, well, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? How many times have we been told that, right? You're always telling us to stop complaining, right? And to get our butts in gear and to make it work. Fortunately for you, you have an opportunity to actually practice what you preach. Because if you help to dismantle these systems that were built to give you advantages at our expense, you get to lead by example and you get to show and prove to the rest of us that what you really believe in is in fact meritocracy and pave the way to have a society that is truly, truly equal for us all. You have been listening to the Good Intent, Good Impact podcast, where this season I have focused on the discourse of critical race theory in the United States. I hope that this information that I have put together for you is useful to you and helpful to you, especially for those of you who are doing the work of anti-racism on the ground. Um, Again, I know the emotional labor is real. Um, I know it's hard and I know we all have to keep up the fight the best way we can. And as I mentioned, this is my my way of trying to contribute to that um, and trying to combat what we're facing, because I truly do believe they're trying to erase us um, and our struggle from the history books. And we need to prevent that from happening at all costs. Um, Again, if this podcast has moved you to do the work of anti-racism or you know other folks who are interested in doing this work, please share this podcast with them um, so they can take what I have shared with you um, and share it with other people in order to make a substantive difference. Um, And with that, I am signing off for now and I will be back for season three later this year. Thanks for listening, everybody.